so I have had these experiences uh, through the years, and part of the experiences include what we um, kind of gather up. And um, along the way, I, I, I gather up little trinkets, <clears throat> but they start to represent something, and you can kind of define a theme. If there was a part in my life, uh, and so these things tend to occupy my office, so, so bear with me. Uh, and they all start to represent an, a chapter of my life in Christ, some part of my faith journey. And one of the things came from New Orleans, uh, and a friend brought home this thing, because uh, I guess this is what you do when you're in a fraternity and you go to New Orleans for spring break, is he thought of me, and he brought this back. I affectionately refer to it as creepy Jesus. Um, and the reason it's creepy is it sits on my shelf, and wherever you are in the room, his eyes follow you. So wherever you are, it looks like he's looking right at you. And I don't know how that affects your faith or your conscience. It tends to want to make me confess a lot. Like, like there's that feeling like big brother is watching. But I would say that there was probably a chapter in my life where I was more motivated by guilt and shame and fear that somehow God was watching and like this lightning bolt had my name on it that it just wanted to come down. And so I, I like to have that as a reminder of maybe where I used to be or maybe like how far I've come. But then I got to a point where... Um, <clears throat> There's action figure Jesus that comes because you come to this point in your faith where I want to do something. Now, some of that motivation is really good. Some of it, though, is I want to make myself more lovable to God. I want to make myself more righteous or more presentable. And it sort of discounts the nature that I'm actually saved by grace alone. And his invitation is he's already accepted me and is asking me to surrender, not work harder. But the idea that action figure Jesus resonates with me as a doer, as a control freak, as someone who wants to be more loved, or as an overachiever who's just trying to strive. And so it kind of puts that chapter of my spiritual growth in context, because what, eventually what I realize, and what I have to relearn, is that it doesn't matter how charming I am, and it doesn't matter how bright I am, it doesn't even matter how many lessons I've learned, I still find myself completely having to surrender that ultimately it's God through the work of the Holy Spirit that is going to bring life change in me and to anyone else that I try and come in contact with. But I like to keep that as a kind of a visible reminder of kind of woe boy, action Dave or action Jesus doesn't always cut it. Now this picture has been hanging in my office for over 20 years and I love it because it's simply Jesus sitting with all comers from different walks, looking like a very urban setting, but you see the kind of street kid, the kind of outcast, the kind of person that might sit on the margins and looking like the most relatable person in the world. And I would say there's been chapters of my own spiritual journey that I have felt quite unlovable. In fact, I want to retreat and not rely on the body of Christ because there's something that I've got to go fix to make it right, to make myself more presentable. Because everyone at church somehow looks like they have their act together. Jesus sits at the feet of those who are asking good questions, those who are seeking, those 
who have a spiritual curiosity but don't have it all figured out. This somehow defines my narrative. So I remember, I, it sits right across from my desk and I look up at this and I go, yeah, that's what I want my story to be is that there's this sort of hospitable, gracious openness that the Christ that I worship, the Christ that I follow is accessible in all means. And these start to reflect the kind of journey that I think we all are at, but then we all often revert back to. So tonight, what I want to talk about is, is the idea of how we come into faith with Christ, that when we come, we recognize and then begin to um, identify God's presence in more and in different ways. And the more we walk in Christ, the more we're able to hear the voice of the shepherd calling out from the wilderness, you whom are dearly loved, come, follow me. See, scripture says in John chapter 10, describes how the sheep will follow the voice of the good shepherd. And I think the journey that we're all on is learning to tune into that voice. Maybe it's the check in our spirit. Maybe it's the hesitation in our own heart, the sense of conviction that we feel to turn the other way. But it says that the sheep, when they hear the stranger's voice, will actually run from it. So it's about hearing the voice of the good shepherd. Tonight, I want to talk about how we recognize and grow our awareness of the presence of God so that when we hear that voice, we'll follow it. Because there's a lot of voices calling us and distracting us along the way. And so one of the things that we talk about here at Mission Hills a lot is the nature of the kingdom of heaven. And one of the things that we've discussed is that when heaven gets talked about, it always seems to be couched with the idea that it's a future destination. And most of us would say, no, I believe in the presence of God here and now. I believe that God is present. But most of us, if we're honest and if we could articulate it, sort of relegate heaven to a future place and a maybe more paradise destination. And yet, Jesus makes this audacious announcement and says the kingdom of God is here and now. And in Matthew chapter 4, he begins to introduce, and it says from that time on, he begins to start to declare that the kingdom of God is here and now. And so um, I like to think that what Jesus is trying to say in those words is that the kingdom of God is actually accessible and available here and now. That is, eternity has already begun. Now, most of us live with a normal that feels destructive and lost and harmful and broken, and so we tend to equate that with a lot of hell on earth, and the, the earth is just a broken place, and yet we maintain a kind of heavenly citizenship that says heaven can come crashing down into and interrupt this hell on earth. And I think this idea of the kingdom of God, or in, depending on which gospel you read, is the kingdom of heaven, is one of the most critical, if not important, concepts in the New Testament for us to begin to understand. Now, both the English and the Greek language refer to the notion of kingdom as something as static or territorial. 
But the Hebrew's reference to the notion of kingdom is always active, and, 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 and it has a way of, of being in action. It has a way of saying it's here and it's now. And so the kingdom of God, as I understand it, is a demonstration of God's signs, gifts, and spiritual wonders. But it's also the kingdom of heaven is when God's people choose to walk in obedience, choose to walk in faithfulness, choose to demonstrate relentless hospitality, um, sort of unrational generosity. It shows compassion when you're busy. It, it's an allowance for being inconvenienced for the benefit of another. This is the kingdom of God at work around us, but it's the kingdom of heaven working in us. And this is where the transformation begins to take place. So that when, when Jesus says, or when the gospel writer of Matthew says, from this time on, it's, it's a, represents a turning point because what it's doing is it's tying in something that would, what has just happened with what has preceded it. See, we have these moments where we encounter some kind of spiritual goosebump or some kind of conviction. And I'd like to think it's a Kairos moment where God interrupts us, God has shown up, and we're supposed to respond one way or the other. From this time on, you can see these turning points in the Gospel of Matthew where something key is happening as a building block in the mission of Jesus. So as we begin this journey leading up to Resurrection Sunday, it's not just one man's testimony that we can be born again. It's that we can experience new life again and again and again. And so when our hearts get calloused up, he wants to resensitize them and break them for all the right reasons. And so as we begin this kind of journey through Lent and up to Easter Sunday, I want to look at these turning points so that you and I can connect the dots between what has happened in our life with what God is doing here and now and somehow make sense over God's authorship of our lives of faith. Are you ready? Does that, does that sound good? So <clears throat> from the first time, it represents also a pivot for us because every success, every lesson learned, every obstacle that's been overcome, God wants to deepen our lives. He wants to write not just a, a new chapter. He wants to move on to the, uh, not revisit an old one. And so he's trying to connect these dots. In Matthew chapter 4, uh, beginning in verse 17, he says, from this time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Well, let me just say this. When God starts to move us on, there is this temptation that I think for all of us, that it gets too comfortable. Uh, we get maybe when things get too hard or get too uncomfortable, there's this desire for us to want to turn back. Instead of inviting a greater level of trust, a greater level of dependence, a greater level of faith, we want to revert back. I think um, God is constantly inviting us towards a next step. And so what's happened just before this announcement has made? Now, Matthew's claim is that he uses this phrase at least three different times in his gospel. But right before this, Jesus has just been baptized by John the Baptist. He wanders out for 40 days into this uh, wilderness experience where he's going to face temptation with Satan. And then he comes back and his cousin John, not John the Baptist, has just been imprisoned. And so now he finds himself 
uh, in this position. Now, what comes after this, remember, when it says from this time on, it's connecting with what has just happened, with what has just proceeded. After this, he goes on to teach a new operating system. It's a new OS for those of you in technology. He uses what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 through Matthew 7, and he begins with these beatitudes in Matthew 5 that describe this new kind of way to simply be human. Now, we read that, and it feels unattainable. And what he's saying is he's introducing a pathway for spiritual formation. It's a pathway that if you want to go to the deep end in life in Christ, a transformational experience where you move away from the center and Christ takes up the center, he's saying, this is my new economy or my new operating system. So he goes into this Sermon on the Mount and begins calling out disciples, which I would like to count myself one of. Now, what Matthew does in his writing, it's interesting because he often ties John the Baptist with Jesus because they both say many of the same things. They both proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is here and now, but they proclaim it for different reasons. John's proclamation of it was because he was fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy that there would be someone before the Savior, before the Messiah, as a forerunner, a foreteller of the things to come, of the kingdom of God that was to come. And so when Jesus comes walking out to be baptized, he's like, I'm not even worthy to untie this guy's sandals. Jesus is like, but you've got to baptize me. When Jesus uses the phrase, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, what he's doing is he's fulfilling some of the same Old Testament prophecy, but now it's a light rising for the, for the savior of the world, not just the Jewish people. He's fulfilling the promise that it's going to be for everyone else non-Jewish. And so this gives us great hope and marries us to this New Testament, new covenant. So it's really exciting to begin to understand what has preceded this, um, but is what led up to this time and place. Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is here and now. So how does that look? on Monday morning. How does that look when the day grows long and, and finances don't match up with expenditures or when budgets go unmet or when bosses are, are untenable or when marriages are, are at discourse? This is what God is saying to us again and again is that my presence is already here and now. Now, um, <clears throat> Up until now, God was simply someone to possess. The Hebrews viewed Yahweh as their God. Um, and so the, when you view it as a possession, it's something to fear, but it's not necessarily something to cherish. It's, it's something to possess, but not something that you're going to share with someone else. So God for them implies God against everyone else. And Jesus is like, Oh, no, 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 that's my, my narrative. That's a misunderstanding on your part. I've come so that all men, all women might know that I am God. And so the turning point here is that Jesus is not so much the new Moses, but the new Joshua. Now, let me just give you a little Old Testament history lesson. Why is this significant? If you remember when the children of Israel were in, were in slavery in Egypt, 
God raised up a deliverer in the form of Moses. After they get on the other side of the Red Sea, there's the parting of the sea, you remember? And then he feeds them with this daily bread. Does this sound familiar? And so they have this deliverer, this savior, if you will, but they wandered for 40 years. But what happened at the end of 40 years? God said, you made it but this generation cannot enter. And so God raises up Joshua to enter the land of promise into the next season of life with God. So what have the Jews been doing this whole time? They're under the oppressive regime of Rome and they're longing for a new savior, a new Moses. And what he's saying is there won't be a new Moses. That was in the form of John the Baptist. He told you that I was coming, just like Moses turned over the reins to Joshua to lead the people. So here Jesus is, and isn't it interesting that Joshua and Jesus are the same name, both meaning God saves. And it would be Jesus that leads him into the new promise, the new covenant of life in Christ. This new promised land, if you will, of recognizing that Christ is now the center of my heart, center of my life, and the center of my, or a way to be in, have an economy of scale within a broken world. This is a revolutionary teaching with a revolutionary new operating system that doesn't need a 2.0 version. And so Jesus comes with this new kind of promise and, and John the Baptist announces the same thing and, and the kingdom is followed. So repentance then is a call to action. It's a chance to turn so that you might experience God's guidance and God's direction, God's salvation in a new way. So here's Jesus at 30 years of age, having prepared for this moment. This is sort of a coming out party. And Jesus wants them and us to grow in our salvation. So the idea that you just get saved once isn't enough. That's not transformational to simply play a prayer, a sinner's prayer. He's inviting us into this next step journey that would say repentance is a chance to take a next step so that they would either turn away or turn toward, or in some cases even return back like the prodigal. This is what it looks like for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, to be at work in our hearts and lives. So repentance gets a bad rap. Repentance is a thing that often reminds us of our woeful inadequacies. So tonight, what I simply want to do is I want to respond by taking communion, but I want to be able to talk about communion in maybe a fresh and a new way. I want to give you two questions, because when we hear the terms repentance, um, it, it has a way of being, sounding a little negative for us because of how it's been proclaimed. But I simply want you to imagine, is there something that I need to turn from? As we prepare our hearts for communion, I just want you to kind of pray a prayer of examination. I want you to consider your own journey, your own week, your own marriage, your own heart, your own thought life. Is there something that I need to turn from that might become a spiritual inhibitor of Christ in you? Secondly, I want you to just simply consider, is there something or someone that I need to turn towards? 
most of us have a fear of homeless people. Most of us have a fear of immigrants, especially if they come from a militant Muslim background. Some of us have a fear of homeless people or mental illness. Some of us have a fear of elderly. Some of us has a fear of just our boss. Is there someone that we're supposed to turn towards because Christ is leading us further into salvation. That means he becomes more the center of our lives. And so as we go into this time of communion, there is a call to repentance, not once and for all, but daily and often, so that we might say, is there something I should turn from? Or is there something I should turn toward? These are what resensitize our hearts. These are what keep us alive. This is what helps Christ make the center. Now, when we come to the cup and when we come to the bread, there's two things that happen within the mystery of this liturgy, this sacrament that we call communion or the Lord's Supper or Eucharist, whatever tradition you came from. There's something called anamnesia and there's something called epiclesis. I know those are really big words and I, you, you don't have to remember those words, but I simply want to illustrate this way. When we talk... Anamnesia literally means to remember. And throughout scripture, we're invited to remember. It says, and oftentimes when you have a communion table, what? Do this in remembrance of me. But even in the Old Testament, there was a call to remember. Remember that you too were once slaves in Egypt. Remember too that you were once dependent on me. There's always a call to remember. So when we come to the table, we're called to remember. I want to talk about that in just a minute. But the epiclesis is also interesting because it literally means to come. So when we pray over these elements that are just inanimate objects of juice and, 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 and wafers, what we're saying is come Holy Spirit and become the literal body and blood so that I ingest these elements, I want to ingest you because what did Christ say? I am the bread of life and I give you my cup and he wants us to ingest him, digest him so that he becomes all of us. It's not just keep him as our buddy on our side or someone that we can have on speed dial when things get overwhelming. He says, no, let me take over every part of your body. Anamnesis and epiclesis. This is the mystery of the sacrament of communion. This word anamnesis is a curious word because most times when we come to this, some slide pops up, we look at a crucifix, we're reminded of this graphic image, we're reminded of Christ's sacrifice for us. Sometimes we're reminded of the suffering of Christ, we're brokenness of Christ, the kind of a betrayal of Christ. And then some guy stands on the stage and he wants to remind us of our sins and that we're supposed to repent. And he reminds us of all the things that we know. Let me just say this. If you were like me, when you first heard the word anamnesia, you thought I said amnesia. That's not the word. In fact, the word is actually anti-amnesia because amnesia is not just forgetting stuff, it's forgetting who you are. Anamnesia is remembering exactly who you are in Christ. 
So when we come to the table, we don't come with shame. We don't come with inadequacies. We come with boldness because in Christ, I'm made righteous. And the last thing he wants us to do is forget who we are or whose we are. And so over and over again, and even the Apostle Paul jumps on this passage and he says, when we come to take the bread and the wine, we're celebrating the Lord's Supper. He says, the last thing you should do is forget who you are. And Jesus, I think, knows how we operate. He knows that we can be so prone to being forgetful. And and in this, he's saying, would you somehow assimilate me and take me into your life by this ordinary act of sitting and having a meal together? Remember who you are. And as this cup becomes a part of you, just like the process of receiving me, which is caught up uh, into mine, your life is not your own anymore. Remember who you are. And remember whose you are. Anamnesis is a call to not forget who you are. And so I hope as you approach the communion table tonight and you consider just in these moments Laurel if you want to just come she's just going to sing a song and I just want you to pray a prayer as you prepare your own heart is there something I need to turn from or and is there something I need to turn towards pray that prayer so that Christ can be made anew so that our hearts can be resensitized to the ministry and the activity of the Holy Spirit And then it will come and you'll take the bread and you can just dip it in the cup. I apologize, these aren't gluten-free. I know that's actually an issue for a few of you, but just dip it in the cup and take the element as you're ready. We'll form a line and just come around here. You'll dip it in the cup. But let's just pray and prepare our hearts. Hal and Gail, if you would join me. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would just have the ministry of your Holy Spirit that you would bring to remembrances those things that grieve your heart, but you would remind us of who we are and whose we are, that we could be found anew in you. Invite us to take a next step. Invite us to be reminded to turn, to turn from, to turn toward, to run into your arms. Give you these moments